We are in 1 John chapter 3 today. You can open up your Bibles there. This uh, little letter that John wrote, as I've talked about before, that was toward the end of John's ministry. Now, uh, there's still a lot of things that can happen with John. Uh, it's thought that he wrote this from the city of Ephesus, and uh, then also writes 2 John, 3 John, pretty close to each other. Uh, compared to or All three of these letters are, are fairly close together. And then after that, John's going to be arrested. They're going to attempt to put him to death at least twice, and then he'll be exiled to the island of Patmos, where the Lord will give him the revelation. So still lots of stuff in store for John. But when he writes this, again, I think it's important to note it's towards the end of his ministry because he's, he's writing some very basic foundational truths, and he's still super excited about it. And I love that. You know, I think, again, sometimes we think that the more we walk with the Lord, the more mature we become in the Lord, that we, somehow we get different more important things to be excited about. But here John is talking about, man, the beauty of our salvation and the love of God, the very things that you would hear the first day in Sunday school when you were a kid. And John is like, man, let this blow your mind. Just try and take in these things in a whole new way. And in chapter two that we looked at, one of the big ones, and it's going to continue into chapter three, was the commandment to love God another to love one another as we love ourselves right to love the lord our god with all our heart mind soul and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves the two greatest commandments and john's going to continue to sometimes directly sometimes indirectly point to those and uh so that's going to continue here and, and again, it's, it's not some new revelation. It isn't some the latest, greatest thing that everybody's always trying to, to sell the new thing, the new book, the new formula. It's the foundational truths as we understand them to a greater depth. Learning to listen to and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Now in chapter 3, he's, as he's continuing these, he's also going to start to bring out kind of a, a comparison or a contrast to really church life or in church life that we see. And John saw it in his day. We see it in our day that there are those that, and they show up to church, they say the right things, they, they use all the right words and, and even quote scripture, but they're just not walking with the Lord. And I've talked with people that absolutely will tell me that they've got sin in their life, but it's not sin to them is what they'll say. Oh, you know, it's sin for everybody else. Or maybe it was sin back in the day, but no longer that somehow they think they've attained some super level that no one else ever has john's going to deal with that saying this is how we know the counterfeits and this is how we know the reality this is what a true believer looks like is motivated by is about and this is the person that's just playing the game right so we'll pray and we will stop for questions as we go but it seems like every couple months i just have to to reiterate this that it when we stop for questions it's question and answer it's not statement. <laughs> so if you have a question, I'd love to hear it. If you have a statement, we can talk about it afterwards. And, and some, uh, some of you have gotten very tricky at uh, arranging your statements like a question, as if we're on Jeopardy. You can, we can save that too. So we're, we're just going to have question and answer as we go. All right, let's pray. 
God, we are so grateful that, uh, first of all, we just get to get together as a family and to get into your word, to celebrate and rejoice with one another and encourage one another of your great love for us. God, we want to understand it more. and We just open up our hearts and minds, Holy Spirit, that you might do your work in us today. Have your way in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So verse 1, chapter 3. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it is not yet revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Again, these are, these are some basic foundational things. And John's pointed to the fact that we are children of God, that we've been adopted into his family. But now as he says it, he, he starts it off with the word behold. And, and it doesn't just mean to look at. The idea is to consider intensely. Really try and wrap your mind around the idea. To behold it, to take it in as, as much as we possibly can. The manner of love that has been bestowed on us. The type of love that God has bestowed, granted to us. It was not earned, it wasn't purchased. We didn't have to somehow manipulate Him into it. His love to us has been a gift, lavished upon us. And we should try. And, and John, again, his, this isn't a new idea. This isn't a new concept. But he's going, just stop for a minute. Calm your mind. Put everything else on pause. And try and behold the type of love God has for you. That's a really good thing for us to do. And I'm convicted by how little I actually do that. I think very often I can go, oh, yeah, sure. The Lord loves me. I know that. And I just cruise on my day. But the idea, and I think this is one of the great things about having that morning devotion time, is just, even if it's just a, for a minute or two, just stop and just consider his great love for you. Not just that he does love you, but the manner of love, the type of love that he has for you, that we should be called his children. And to me, the, the, the emphasis there is, we. We? Have you met us? I mean, that, that he would choose us? He could choose anybody. And not only did he pursue us and save us, but John's point is not only all that, but he loves us and calls us his children. See, he could pursue us and he could save us and he could have done that out of responsibility. I created those little monsters. I guess I should do something, right? Uh, you know, I, I need to wrangle them somehow. I will show them salvation. He could even love us, but only to a certain degree, right? He could say, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to save them. I'll even love them. But that's as far as he goes. But to love us to the extent of saying, you are now one of my children. <laughs> The idea that because of the work of Jesus Christ, he looks upon 
us, again, consider us, with the same love he looks upon his own son. It just puts me in awe. And that's John's point. Man, behold that. Look intensely on that. That we, with all of our weaknesses and sins and failures and our rebellious spirit and prideful and self-centered attitudes, all these things that we have, we had nothing to offer Him. And yet, He saved us, loves us, and calls us His children. And because of that, we have been taken from the citizenship of this world to the citizenship of heaven. That our, our eternal zip code has completely changed. That we no longer belong to this world, to its systems, to its pleasures. We are detached. We've been removed. Even if we don't understand it completely, we've been removed and set in heaven. A place reserved for us. We are seated there at his table. Our our citizenship has completely changed. And this is important because it's the direction that John is going here. That we need to understand that there's a reason why we have conflict in the world. Because we don't belong to it anymore. That the king that we serve, they did not recognize. They did not know. And neither will they know us. Right? Before our, our home was this world. Before we came to Christ, the world, these were our people. This was our, our tribe, our nation, right? And we've now been removed from that and set in heaven. And so the world doesn't recognize the people we've become. And this kingdom of earth and all the things in it, John's already mentioned this, they're all passing away. There isn't any kingdom, there isn't any treasure, there isn't anything of this world that will last. It will all be dissolved. And again, that's, that's important for me to remember. Because I can get very obsessed, especially when it comes to things like politics. Now, I think we do have a right, and we have an important right and duty to vote, to be prayerful, and to be as biblical in our choices as we can to vote, right? Not everyone in the world has that right, and we do. But honestly, I can become obsessed. No matter the outcome of any vote, any election, any bill, it will all pass away. It is all temporary. But the kingdom that we now belong to and the king that we serve will never end, is never shaken. Anything that happens here on the earth never catches him off guard. And the more we walk with him, the closer we get to being in that kingdom. While this kingdom is fading away, that one's becoming brighter and brighter, right? Causing us to want to get closer and closer to the Lord himself. And John says, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying there's a lot we don't understand. We don't know what we're going to be. We don't know what it's going to be like. And I like that John was willing to say that. Again, the apostle John that walked with Jesus and at this time was the man. He was like the one everybody looked to. And he's like, I don't know what heaven's going to be like. But I know that when he arrives, whether the Lord comes back for us or I find myself standing before his throne, we're going to be like him. And he doesn't mean we're going to be all-powerful or all-knowing or any of that. 
What he means is we're going to be completely free from sin. We're going to be like Jesus is right now. We won't have any temptation. We won't have any regret. There won't be any tears. It will all be passed away. And man, that's one of my favorite ideas or truths of heaven. That when we pass from this life into that kingdom, that all of the garbage from this life will also pass away. We're going to get set free from it. This flesh that we constantly struggle with, that we're constantly arguing with and dealing with, gone. And then when we stand in heaven, who we really are is who we'll be always. You know that there will be no jerks in heaven. That everything that makes up a jerk, that makes up a horrible person, even within the church, it'll all be removed. And we will be known just as we are known by him. That we will see one another and we won't even have to introduce ourselves. They will just know. You know, and I think about when Moses and Elijah showed up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and and the three guys were there and they look up and they're like, oh, it's hey, it's it's Moses and Elijah. Well, how'd they know that? You know, there wasn't name tags. Hello, my name is Elijah. They knew because everything that made up Elijah and Moses was standing before them. And it'll be like that in heaven. All of this stuff will just be passed away, free from sin, all the worldly garbage. And we will be free to know him just as we are known by him already. Um, I love that. Nothing hidden, no shame, just an honest, transparent relationship with the Lord. And if we understand that, again, the things that John's talking about here, while on the surface are very basic, they're also very hard to wrap our minds around. Right? I mean, it's the idea that, of really beholding the manner of love that has been shown to us. It's hard to wrap our minds around. But as we do, and as we understand that we are not, are not of this world anymore, but of another kingdom completely, then it should change really the way that we live now. Again, knowing that the things of this life are passing away, well, then I'm not going to put my trust in them. Well, we all have to use things of the world, right? We all get the job, we got to pay the bills, and those are worldly things, but it's part of our responsibility. But at the same time, I'm not putting my, my value in those things, I'm not putting my trust in those things, because they're not eternal. And it, when we understand that, not only do we separate ourselves from that, but we desire to be purified from them. In verse 3, he says, everyone who has this hope, meaning the hope of heaven, the hope of our eternal life with the Lord, purifies himself just as he is pure. And there's this idea that we start to get, it's like, man, I don't want anything dragging me down, holding me back. Like it talks about in Hebrews, the, the sin that so easily entangles, the weight that, that we are to cast off, those, those things, the very things we start looking for in our lives going, I don't want to be held back from the race that's set before me. I don't want to miss out on the very best that God has for me. I know heaven is on the way, but there's also great things that he wants to do right now. And I don't want to miss out on them. And so the desire to, to purify ourselves, remove those things from our lives that are of this kingdom that, that we no longer belong to. So we set different priorities. And we set our motivations on the things that are eternal. Uh, 
And while they don't completely go away, again, this, this flesh that we're connected to, and I think it's our worst enemy, even worse than the devil himself, because the flesh is constantly trying to get us off track with the things that draw us to that old world, that draw us to that old kingdom. And then the enemy just exploits those things. Right? If my flesh didn't want any of it, there'd be no way for the enemy to, to tempt me. But this flesh... And it desires to draw us into temptation. But again, the closer we get to heaven, the more focused we get on this amazing love that's been shown to us, and those temptations have less and less draw. They, they don't draw me in. They don't fool me quite like they used to. And, and man, that's what we are desiring, right? This is a part, it's a process of purifying ourselves. I wish it was just like a one-time thing. You're like, oh, hey, Lord, I just want to be pure before you. And he's like, okay, boom, and you're done. That's not this life. That's how heaven will be, but that's not this life. We are those that continue to struggle, but we have a reason to struggle. We have a reason to fight. All right, any questions before we go on? Dustin, way in the back. Can hope be enough concerning like the hope of heaven? Yeah. yeah. So I think hope and faith are very much intertwined, right? Um, if it's because we can have hope in things without any evidence, without any proof, and that never will take place, right? You can have a hope in the tooth fairy, but it's your parents putting the money under the pillow, right? Did I mess that up? I guess there's no kids in here. No kids in first service. A few people are like, my parents did what? And so it isn't hope and hope alone. That's where faith comes in, right? So it is a faith in the evidence that we've already been, that we've already been given about who Jesus is and the things that he promises, right? Again, it's not a blind faith, but it is a, a faith that has plenty of evidence to it. And so I think it's faith first, and then hope comes from that, right? Because of the evidence I've seen in my faith, I can have a solid hope in heaven still being ahead. Yeah? Yeah. Great question, though, man. Anything else? All right. Verse 4. It says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifest to take away our sin. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, children, excuse me, in this, the children of God, try one more time. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know, excuse me, we know that we have passed from death to life because the love of the brethren, because, hang on a second, I am all messed up because of my notes being in the wrong place. There we go. I'm trying to read around this piece of paper here. Okay, go back to verse 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, again, John's bringing these things out, and it's really a contrast, as I mentioned before, of those who are true followers of Christ and those who are showing up for church, they're playing the game, they're, they're into churchianity, they like all the, the trappings of church, but honestly, they've got wrong motives in what they're doing. And just like in our day, it was the same in John's day, where people had taken bits and pieces of truth and tried to uh, come up with their own version of Christianity, right? There, John referred to some of those in chapter 2, that they've gone out from us, which proves they are never part of us. And, and it's the same in our day, where people will take a piece of this and a piece of that, and, oh, that isn't really sin anymore, and, and whatever they're doing. And, and John is just simply saying, look, if that person is saying sin's okay, they're not from the Lord. It doesn't matter what else they say. It doesn't matter how smart they sound, how kind they seem to be, what acts of service they do. If they're saying that sin is no longer sin, they are not from the Lord, right? And again, it's basic, but it's, it's sad how often people will fall for that or get distracted by it. He puts it so simply here. Sin is lawlessness. They're breaking the very laws of God. We don't get to define right and wrong. And I think that's a big misunderstanding when it comes to people as they talk about the church. Well, who, who's, why should the church get to choose what's right and wrong? Church doesn't. And I think that's as important. Not only does the church not to get to say what's wrong, the church doesn't get to say what's right. People outside the church don't get to say what's right or wrong either. God has established all law. All physical law and principles in the physical realm, gravity, time, inertia, have all been established by God. And more lasting than any of those are the spiritual laws of sin and righteousness. Also established by God, not by us. Too often people say, well, you know, the Bible says that that's sin because those were misguided people. Those were really, you know, a moral structure of a primitive time. But now we know that those things aren't sin. Yeah, if God said it's sin, it's still sin. And it, it doesn't change because we vote. We don't get a vote in right and wrong. And again, in our society, especially in America, 
I think we, people misunderstand that. Like, well, if we all agreed it's not sin, well, then it's not sin. No, because we don't, there's only one vote that matters, God's, not ours. And he always has the majority. People will also try and redefine why Jesus came. And this is something very popular right now. The people will talk about Jesus being a, a moral leader and a moral teacher, that he came to bring equality, and that he came to bring animal rights and free trade and good politics. That is not why Jesus came at all. Jesus came to save that which was lost, to die for sinners. That because he established the, raw, the laws of right and wrong, he needed a way to redeem all of us who are wrong. And he is that way, and the only way. He, verse 5 says, he was manifest to take away our sins. Now, along with that comes equality and a kindness toward our fellow human and wanting to treat each other well and rightly and lovingly. But those things are a byproduct. They were not the purpose. Now, it does get a little bit confusing starting about verse 6. Um, where it says, whoever abides in him does not sin. And whoever sins has neither seen him or know him. And this is the part where we all kind of go, whoa. Because it's, he's just talking about singular. Man, you say you know Jesus, but you still have sinned or you have sin in your life or you ever stumble in sin. Well, that's not what John is saying. He's not talking about somebody that struggles with sin or uh, is fighting against it or dealing with it or, you know, failing from time to time. What he's talking about is somebody uh, that's choosing to live in it. And it's a little bit more real, or I shouldn't say realistic, a little bit more understood in the original language, a little clearer, uh, that he's, again, drawing a contrast. And he uses the word abide, whoever abides in him. And really that word, the idea of it continues so to abide means to live in or live for something. And so if you're living in Jesus, living for Jesus, then you're abiding in him. And the contrast is that anybody who lives for or abides in sin can't live for Jesus. You can't do one or the other. He's not talking about the person that struggles with sin. He's talking about the person that doesn't struggle with sin at all. Person that can do whatever they want and not lose a minute of sleep. The person that can say it's okay for them, they can say that it's not a sin, doesn't bother them, there's no conviction, they're not in Jesus. They're abiding in the old kingdom that he came to save us from. Whoever abides in Jesus is, is who we want to be. Those that are like, no, I'm... Even though we're, we're flawed, even though we make mistakes, even though we, we come up short, we are continuing to abide in him. Though the righteous falls seven times, yet he still rises. That's the idea. 
Verse 8, that uh, he's speaking about these people that, again, dismiss sin, say it's not sin for them, whatever it might be, however they justify it. In verse 8, he makes it so clear, they are on the same track as the devil. That they're actually following after him. Whether they know it or not, doesn't matter. People go, well, I don't even believe in the devil. How can I follow him? You are. <laughs> You're on the same path, on the same roadway, saying that God's wrong, you're right, and you're going to show him how you know better than he is. That's, that's the path of the devil, right? Following right in his footsteps. Now, as believers, following after Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit. And so when, when John's talking about that anyone who's abiding in, in Jesus does not sin, the idea is that we're not okay with it. We can't abide in sin because we abide in Jesus Christ. So when we sin, it's a heavy burden. It's a heavy weight. And I remember hearing this analogy years ago, and it has always stuck with me because we have those low times where we're like, Lord, why won't you just deliver me from this? Why is it still a temptation? Why do I let these words come out of my mouth? Why do I have this attitude? And we just get so discouraged sometimes, right? And this, this analogy has, has been such an encouragement to me. So if, if you were sound asleep and I came in and, and took a, a heavy weight, let's say a 150-pound weight, and I put it on top of you, Man, you'd snap awake and you'd struggle and you'd fight and you'd do everything you could to get out from underneath that weight, why? Because you're alive. But now I take that same weight down to a morgue, and I put it on a dead person, and they are totally at peace with it. Not one flinch. Won't bother them a bit, because they're dead. So the fact that we struggle against sin proves we're alive, proves that we are abiding in Christ, that we have life in him, and yeah, we struggle, and yeah, we fight. But you know what? There's a day we're going to get free. And we look forward to that kingdom and entering into that day, right? Again, these are the things that John's pointing to. These are the encouragements that he's bringing. Hey, man, if you're in Jesus, and it's, this is important because I've heard people get super discouraged by this section of Scripture, especially if it's during that time of struggle, especially if it's in that time of, man, I'm already just, I feel so guilty and so beaten down from my failures. And you read this section of Scripture and just, maybe I'm not really saved. Man, I just keep falling into this sin. Why can't I get free? That isn't John's point. It's not what he's about. He's trying to bring encouragement to go, look, you just can't abide in sin anymore because you're abiding in Jesus. You're alive. Be encouraged at the life that we've been given. In verse 10, he says, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are made manifest. Clearly seen is the idea of manifest. That what was hidden, what was unknown, uh, has been clearly seen, brought into the light. And John's pointing to not just what we say, but what we do. He, he's brought this point up a couple times in just a few chapters. That we can say a lot of the right things. We can quote verses, like I said. People can show up to church and, and, and say hallelujah all the time. But what we do makes manifest who we are. Right? The action that accompanies the words makes all the difference. And, and John's saying, this is how it's revealed. This is how we know the difference between love and righteousness and sin and selfishness. Is 
the works that accompany the life, the person that's speaking. And I think it's a good question for us to ask. Although, although we are abiding in Christ, we belong to Christ, I think it's still a good, good question for us to ask is, where am I putting my time? Right? What am I practicing? And I like that, that word used several times in John's letter here, that we're practicing righteousness. doesn't mean we haven't got it yet. <laughs> we're just practicing it. We're trying to figure it out. We're still wrestling through it. It doesn't mean we do it perfectly, but we're, we're practicing righteousness. And on the flip side, those that practice sin, are they're, either one we can get better at. What are we getting better at? What are the things that we are becoming experts at and growing in? The other thing I think is, is important is that John puts together love and righteousness. These have to be together. Love and righteousness. Important because too often we can focus on one or the other but not both. And they have to be together or we will go off on some weird tangent. If you have righteousness without love, then what you have is legalism. You look just like the Pharisees. All about righteousness. Nothing about love. If you have love without righteousness, what you have is immorality. Or what you'll end up in is immorality because you can justify just about anything with love. Oh, love's all that matters. We'll just love. It's okay. That's not sin. We'll just love. Right? Love and righteousness together. And Jesus defines them both. He shows us what love is. He shows us what righteousness is. And he shows us how they work together, right? Jesus never dismissed sin. He never turned a blind eye to sin. He absolutely showed righteousness. But everybody knew him by his love. So we see that balance in him. And John again points, hey, this is the message from the beginning. Love one another. Show that love and righteousness as we love one another. And not just put up with each other. <laughs> I think sometimes, sometimes that's it's as close as we can get to love. We'll just put up with one another. It's, it's so much more than that, and it's a growing in that, that, no, I, I really want to care and love one another. Because it is possible to, to be part of a family and not love one another, right? In a church, in, a, in an earthly family, we can be absolutely related and not love each other. And the example of that that he gives is Cain and Abel. Cain's a great example of how not to love. And it's a sad story. Actually, it wasn't that long ago we've talked about Cain and Abel, but it is a sad story because you literally see God begging Cain to repent. As he tells him, sin is at your door. You must resist it. He's begging him, make the right choice, Cain. Won't you be accepted? Won't I love you? Won't I be right here for you? Just resist sin. It's just crouching at the door waiting for you. But instead, he chose to abide in sin. The decision point was right then. He could abide in the Lord or he could abide in sin. And he chose sin. And the reason he chose it was because his brother was already abiding in the Lord. 
and he was jealous. Again, this ties right back into what John is talking about. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that non-believers don't get you. Don't be surprised when they attack you. Because just like Cain and Abel, you've chosen to abide in righteousness. You've, a cho- you've chosen to abide in Christ, to be part of a kingdom they do not understand and they are not interested in. You are a traitor in their eyes. And we shouldn't let that catch us off guard. Shouldn't be surprised that the world can hate us. Again, no longer citizens. We don't belong to them anymore. And and again, it's important we don't respond with that with anger because we go, oh yeah, well, I don't really care about you either. We want them brought into the kingdom. There were people praying for me when I was the enemy of God. When I had wanted nothing to do with him, nothing to do with Jesus or the Bible or nothing, and people were praying for my salvation, even though I was just the biggest jerk in the world. And so as people come at us, seeing us as a traitor or whatever it might be, man, how we need to be showing the reality of the love of Jesus Christ. And sometimes... That can be a tough love. It doesn't mean we become the walking mat of the world. It doesn't mean that people just can do whatever we want, take whatever they want. That's not it at all. But we are doing our best to love them as Christ has loved us. To do what is right and best for them, even at our expense if necessary. All right. Any questions? Austin. Right. But there's contentious issues that we take. Um, things like uh, supporting this political movement is a sin, or um, drinking alcohol is a big one. Right. Some people would say that's a sin, others wouldn't. Um, and some of those things, like for example, drinking alcohol, I don't have a problem with. I don't view that as sin. Is that something that I should be more concerned about? That's a great question. Because especially in our day right now, I, I think one of the worst things that social media has done is gives, these, gives people a platform where they try and define right and wrong, right? And so they'll go on there and say, well, if you watch this show, then you hate Jesus. And you're like, what? Or if you do this or you do that, or if you're a part of this group, then you don't really believe in the Bible. Like, when did they get to define right and wrong? Well, they don't. And so I think there's the very clear this is sin, this is righteousness. And what you're talking about tends to be those things, like you said, they're, they're topics that are, we need to wrestle with. But that's our responsibility to wrestle with them and to seek out people that we also know love the Lord and are grounded in the Word, to have those discussions, right? To not let somebody else try and guilt us or f- cause us to be motivated by fear, um, to just basically bully us into doing what they want, Right? We need to wrestle those things out for ourselves. And whether we're, you know, you use the example of drinking alcohol, that's been a debate for years within the church. So I need to make sure that I come to a place that I biblically understand it as well as I can and, and walk that walk, right? But yeah, great question. But I encourage all of us in, in those, I wouldn't even call them gray areas, but they're areas of contention. Uh, it's a great way of wording that. That, that we wrestle those things out. Don't be afraid of them. Don't avoid them. But 
wrestle them out. I wouldn't talk about them in social media either because <laughs> you get all the opinions you don't need. Talk about it with godly people that you trust, right? Great one, Austin. Yeah. Right. It's the same idea that he was talking about earlier of abiding in. So he's not saying that a murderer can't get forgiveness. Or Moses is a great example. Moses was used mightily after that. That's, in fact, he wasn't used until after that. So it isn't that forgiveness isn't available. It's that a person that's continuing in any sin, knowing it's sin, they're not going to have salvation. They need to seek forgiveness and repent of those sins. Right? That's what it's all about. If, uh, if a murderer never repents, well, they're not saved. And, and it's the evidence of that. John's also pointing to the same thing that Jesus spoke to that is very often misunderstood, that if you hate your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. If you have a lustful thought for a woman, you've already committed adultery. Jesus was not saying that to have those thoughts or to be tempted is sin. He's saying that's where all sin starts, right? And so people go, oh, even to have the thought is sinful. Uh, I, I've even talked to people, well, I had the thought, so I figured I might as well do it. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, you're not even thinking straight. Jesus was saying it isn't just the action we need to be concerned about. It's where it began, and it begins in the heart. And so if we deal with it here, then it won't get out, right? It won't become an action. John's saying the same thing. Then murder, to hate your brother, man, you're on the path to murder. You need to deal with it now when you can still choose to love. All right. Any other questions? Great questions today. All right. Verse, verse 16. It says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for, our, for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. If our, for if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have this confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And this is the commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him, and he in him, and by this we know, that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Then and now, I think the problem with the idea of loving one another, I don't, I've never met anyone who had a problem with when you say, we should love one another. And somebody's like, oh, no, we shouldn't. You know? <laughs> never had that. You know? Everyone's like, well, of course we should. The problem is, is that Everybody tends to define love differently. 
that love is you doing whatever I want. Then you're loving me, right? And, and so you get all these variations and ideas on what love is supposed to be. And, and John points us back to the only one who defines what love is, and that is Jesus, who's given us the ultimate example that he gave his life for us. By this we know love, verse 16, because he laid down his life for us. Jesus told the disciples, no one has greater love than this, than one should lay down his life for his friends. It's the greatest love there is. And I, I tend to define it, kind of put it together as love is doing what is right and best for another at your expense. It's what Jesus did for us. He gained nothing in his sacrifice for us. He gave everything, paid our price, and that's what love looks like. Anything else is, is a less than. Even, it can be close, but it's less than that love, right? If you try and add something, take away something, change something. And so, again, this brings us back to, to the very first thing that we looked at here in this chapter. Behold what manner of love the Father has shown to us. This is that love. Jesus laid down his life for us. And again, that's not a new truth. It isn't some great revelation no one's ever heard in here. But to take it in like it was something new. To wrap our minds around it as much as we can to try and behold the manner of love shown to us. And the idea is, is that when that love is flowing into our lives, it's as we attempt to behold what manner of love he's given us. And when we take that quiet time, when we just pause, even in the midst of some chaotic part of our day, to just sit for a moment and go, Jesus, you love me. Let the whole rest of the world stop for 10 seconds to try and behold the manner of love that has been bestowed upon us. That's how the love flows in. And how it flows out is that we would love our brothers and sisters that are around us. Love one another. But again, there is this contrast that in verse 17, but whoever is, has goods of this world and sees his brother in need and shuts up his, his heart against him. And that's the important part. Shuts up his heart against him does the love, how does the love of God abide in him? And it's not just in word, it must be in action. That doesn't mean that we can provide for every single person. It doesn't mean that we see every needy person and go, oh, that's it, I'm going to sell my car, sell my house, sell my stuff to provide everything for the people around me because then it's all gone. But it is, does mean that we're not shutting up our heart against their need and that we're asking the Lord, how can I help? You show me how to love my neighbor. And that's how that love flows out. And then John talks about this great benefit that comes. He talks about this confidence that we have in the Lord. And I think too often confidence is seen as, a, as overconfidence. It's almost, I wouldn't say it's a bad word, but it's a word we don't use a whole lot, especially as we talk about our walk with the Lord, that I am confident that I'm pleasing the Lord. We're like, ah, I hope so. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can. But John's talking about, look, when, when we are doing as much as we can to abide in him, let that lo love flow into our life. 
And we're doing the best we can to let that love flow out to our neighbors. And you can be confident that the Lord is pleased. You can be confident that he's, he's joyful over your life and, and what your attempt to do those things as well as you can. Doesn't mean we're doing it perfectly. Doesn't mean that we don't do it flawlessly. And, and really, this is what he's pointing to in verse 20 when he says, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. Have you ever had that time, and I think we all have, when you tried to do something nice, and then afterwards, you were just beating yourself up about it? Oh, man, I should have done more. I could have said that differently. That didn't come out right. I think they may have misunderstood it. You start second-guessing everything, right? That is your heart condemning you. That's your flesh trying to keep you from doing that anymore. Just stop, stop trying to love your neighbor. You keep messing it up. and like, oh, good point. God is greater than our heart. And when our heart doesn't is, or isn't allowed to condemn us, it's because we can look at it and go, Lord, I just want to serve you. I just want to bring you glory. I want to please you. And if that means, so we got to give some time or some money or, or whatever it might be to practice that righteousness, to practice that love, then I want to do that because I want to abide in him and I want to bring in glory. And I want to see people added to the citizenship of heaven. Amen? Amen. 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 Any other questions? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we are given the privilege to abide in you, that uh, you want our company, you want us close. You came to save sinners like us. And, And Lord, we want people to know your great love. We want people to be rescued from this fallen kingdom that is falling apart and brought into the eternal kingdom where you are the one and only king. Pray that you use our lives however you want to accomplish that work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.